Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we will discuss a subject that is unquestionably the most impactful thing you can do for your own health and the health of others, especially during these times of elevated infectious disease concern. That thing is to ensure you are metabolically healthy and insulin sensitive. And we have one of the world's very best experts on this subject on the show today. Yes, we have the scientifically adored Professor Ben Bickman on the mics. Now, I completely get these terms sound overly technical and are far from instructive, but it's so critically important that we as individuals as societies and as healthcare providers understand what it takes to be metabolically healthy. Understand and live this one concept well enough and you will protect yourself against the plethora of modern chronic diseases, as well as shoring up your defenses against infectious diseases such as COVID-19 and the flu. If you are coming in pretty naive to this topic, that's cool. A great place to start is actually the prior episode episode 144, where we start from the grassroots of metabolism and metabolic health. Once you have a baseline appreciation, then this is the episode to really bring it all home. Professor Ben Bickman is just so knowledgeable on the subject of insulin resistance and fat cell metabolism, two major pieces behind metabolic syndrome. Yes, this is a geeky episode but it's completely accessible to everyone, I promise. In part because Ben is just so eloquent in explaining complex human biology in a way that is real-world and digestible. Moreover, this episode is super practical too. Not only will you know more than the super majority of people when it comes to metabolic health, insulin sensitivity, and the links between metabolic and immune function, but you will also know how to achieve these states of optimal health too. This could make a huge difference to your life and those around you. This episode really is about being your best. And who really wants to live in a body that is handicapping them, whether it comes to their performance, their health, their self-love, and their mental health? I know I wouldn't, and I'm pretty sure that you and everyone else listening feels the same way. As always, you can check out the full show notes by clicking the link within the description of this episode. And if this discussion resonates with you, then please help others find this show by leaving a five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging us in a screenshot, whether it be in Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, then do check out our Be Your Best self-optimization journey, an online self-improvement program like no other letting you into the human code and helping you realize your full potential and to be your best. You can find more details and podcast listener discounts in the episode notes. Okay, without further delay, I hope you enjoy this fascinating discussion on insulin resistance and metabolic health with the marvelous one and only Professor Ben Bigman. Okay, so you'll know I have been banging on about metabolic health for 
quite a while. And my messaging has elevated and amplified significantly during this COVID-19 crisis. Look, I truly believe our best defense against respiratory infectious diseases caused by coronaviruses or parainfluenza is our health, and specifically our metabolic health. See, the reality is face covering mandates, social distancing requirements, draconian lockdowns, experimental vaccines that may or may not come, and living in fear bring so little value in comparison to this, as well as coming with enormous downsides and social economic disruption. So with that critically important topic to discuss, I wanted to make sure we do this right and with a leading expert to come and join us. And that's exactly what is about to happen. We have the renowned Professor Ben Bickman on the show. And if you're not already aware, Ben is a lecturing professor of pathophysiology, as well as being a biomedical scientist whose research is fascinating and truly needed. He's one of the foremost experts on human metabolism globally. He studies the intimate relationship between metabolism and immune health. He's a fantastic speaker, which you'll find out in just a moment. And he's also an author with a highly anticipated book that has just released called Why We Get Sick. It's an absolute pleasure and a privilege to grab some time with this great mind. So Ben, a sincere thank you for joining us on this show today. Welcome, my man. Steve, thank you so much for the introduction. I, I love you are re- hitting such relevant points in that brief intro. More, now more than ever, we should be scrutinizing metabolic health. Absolutely. And let's make sure we do that. <laughs> it sounds complicated. And I've been using the word quite, quite a lot recently. But I think it's quite... Um, it's vacant. It doesn't mean much to most people. So hopefully by the end of today, metabolic health is going to be clear in people's minds and they're going to know what to do to have good metabolic health. But before we do that, Ben, um, do you want to round off the edges and bring some extra color to your academic and vocational background for our listeners? Yeah, sure. Sure. My my path to becoming a metabolic scientist was, it's probably typical of, of academia, uh, which is to say that it was a bit of a a bit of an adventure of me learning what I was interested in when I began my academic career with my first graduate degree I was following my interests in exercise and so I I received a master's degree in exercise physiology and that was really derivative of my interest in skeletal muscle I was interested in what made muscles bigger and better But by the end of my master's degree, I had stumbled across this paper that had been published a few years prior, but but very recently. So this was still new stuff. It was exciting to see science in a living, breathing way as opposed to just sort of it's done and it's all in the textbooks. It was such an awakening for me to realize that we are still learning more and more about about the human body, our own bodies. And this study in particular detailed the process uh, whereby fat cells start to uh, exacerbate uh, poor health in the body quite directly um, by producing pro-inflammatory proteins called cytokines. So this was this was eye-opening for me for two reasons. One, it indicated that our fat cells are actually another endocrine organ secreting hormones that will flow through the blood. That was phenomenal to me, just like they were acting like the pancreas or the thyroid gland. But then second, it also revealed a mechanism whereby fat cells 
directly influence the health of the body and and namely this connection between obesity and diabetes and that was something i was beginning to be a bit curious about and and so finding that paper completely shifted my interest i was no longer interested in muscle cells and i became completely fixated on fat cells and that was work i followed up and continued to study with my uh, my dissertation and my doctoral work looking at changes in inflammation and, and insulin sensitivity in individuals who have had gastric bypass or what's called metabolic surgeries to lose weight. And then I continued that interest in, with my postdoctoral work, uh, actually, which placed me and my little family in Singapore, working with Duke Medical School, one of the preeminent medical schools uh, probably in the world, certainly in the U.S. And that was continuing to look at how the body develops insulin resistance and and looking more and more at fat cells. And now that I've been the principal investigator in my own lab at my university for about 10 years now, we've continued to pursue the fat cell um, and look at the relevance of the fat cell in metabolic health. And uh, now to the point where we are um, using humans, we actually have people come to the lab and we take little fat biopsies from their belly and we study the different the we study the effects of lifestyle variables on fat cell metabolism or fat cell physiology. So that's that's my adventure um, to becoming the principal investigator in the metabolism lab here at BYU. And and professionally, that interest isn't going away uh, as as we've already both alluded to. Um, the need to scrutinize metabolic health just gets greater every day. Uh, partly because our metabolic health continues to get, we get it so wrong. We continue to get it so wrong. And so it's going to stay relevant in that regard, but also simply in light of this new obsession on infectious diseases that once upon a time, many would have thought there was no relevance with metabolic health. But of course, we're seeing more and more that there is, but I don't want to get ahead of, I don't want to get us too far in the conversation. So that's my, that's me filling in some of the cracks, so to speak. Lovely, Ben. That's great. Um, just clarification. So are you still in Singapore or are you now over in the States? No, I'm back. I'm in the US now. Now, full disclosure, I'm a Canadian originally, so a Commonwealth boy myself. Okay. Uh, but came came down uh, to the US for all of my higher education and then came back uh, to the US after my fellowship. So we, we moved to Singapore in uh, 2008 with one little baby. We moved back into the US in 2011 with a second little baby. And now we've added one more baby and been here at this university, at Brigham Young University here in the Rocky Mountains. Lovely. Good stuff. Okay. So there's there's loads to cover. But um, whilst this audience, I would say they're intelligent, of course they are, um, they they go with the flow in terms of we, we do go quite technical. That being said, it has to be practical. And I would like us to start at the beginning of understanding the metabolism and quote me if I'm wrong or restate if I'm wrong, but I think understanding insulin's role is probably a great place to start. So if you agree, could we explore what is insulin? How is it produced? What processes does it induce? Uh, And then maybe we can start to understand when things go wrong with insulin and glucose. Yes, yes. I think it is very appropriate to start a discussion of metabolic health with an understanding of insulin. 
because metabolic health really is a synonym for insulin sensitivity and, and poor metabolic health is synonymous with insulin resistance. But before we get there to your point, um, let's identify the, the hormone itself. So insulin is a small little protein hormone that we all have in our bodies. It's flowing through our blood all the time unless you are a type 1 diabetic. Type 1 diabetes is the loss of those cells that produce insulin in the pancreas and thus the essential therapy for a type 1 diabetic is to give insulin injections every day and, and that is absolutely necessary uh, and underscores the necessity of insulin itself. So lest any um, come away from this conversation at the end of it all thinking il insulin is the villain, I want to be clear in saying it, it's, it's the hero as well. We must have it in order to survive. It's just our environment is an excess. In fact, that might be another way of introducing it. So whereas type 1 diabetes is a lack of insulin, type 2 diabetes is too much. And, and I, I won't go beyond that now at the moment just because that starts getting us into the conversation of insulin resistance itself. But insulin as a hormone is often looked at strictly through the lens of blood glucose control. And, and it would, it's this idea that you eat something starchy and sugary and your blood glucose levels start to spike. That itself can be lethal to the body. We cannot live if our blood glucose levels are too high for too long. And so insulin comes in as a hero and pushes, if you will, the glucose from the blood into the cells of our body, most especially our muscle cells and our fat cells. And our muscle cells in particular are the main sink or the main consumer for that glucose after we've eaten a meal. However, looking at insulin strictly through the lens of blood glucose control is profoundly unfair insofar as insulin actually has effects at every cell of the body and in every cell of the body it can have varying effects. And let me be clear, literally every cell in the body responds to insulin. So there are these things called insulin receptors, basically little doors that only insulin can come and knock on. And then just like when someone comes and knocks on the door of, of our houses, there's something that happens inside the house. A little kid runs to the door, the dog starts barking, but we, something happens. That's some, that something also happens in the cells of our bodies, whether it's helping maintain neurons, whether it's helping bones get bigger, whether it's helping the, the liver to know what to do with the energy that it has, the fats and the glucose and the ketones. Insulin does thousands of things at and it has different effects at all the different cells in the body. So we need it and we need it to be working well. That's the sort of primer on insulin itself. Okay. Um, I, I also understand it to not only shuttle energy or glucose in the form of glycogen into muscles, um, but it also shoves excess energy into fat, is my understanding, mm -hmm. as well as um, allowing protein, protein synthesis by shuttling amino acids. So I consider it being anabolic in nature, both to you know providing energy to those systems. Is that a fair understanding? Yes, yes. Yeah, excellent. I'm thrilled you mentioned that. Yeah. One of the, if we were to try to look at all of the, the myriad effects that insulin has at every cell in the body, a theme of all of it would be just as you describe, it is anabolic. Insulin tells cells what to do with the energy that it has. And the general theme of that, if we take it one step further, 
to make it more specific, is that insulin tells cells to store energy and to build things. That is what an anabolic means or anabolism. So at a muscle cell, it will defend the protein. It will prevent the breakdown of muscle protein, for example. At fat cells, insulin will very potently inhibit the breakdown of fat. So it will inhibit lipolysis and the breakdown of fat and, in contrast, promote the storage and uptake of nutrients to, to, to store more fat, doing similar effects at the liver as well, promoting the storage of energy and the synthesis of bigger molecules. So you can see the, the relevance and the necessity of insulin just to maintain normal cellular function. But you can also in that description see the problem that if someone is, for example, hoping to shrink their fat cells, it will be impossible unless insulin is low. And, and by low, you know, I, I can't really give someone a specific level because it just depends, but, but it can't be high. Mm. High insulin is completely antagonistic to a fat cell shrinking. It simply won't allow it to happen. And, and so we can see here part of the problem, although, again, I'm getting a bit ahead of myself. In today's world, if someone is living a life with chronically elevated insulin, and indeed most people are, Good luck trying to shrink your fat cells. So anyway, back to the point. Um, yes, insulin is anabolic in, in every way, really, but that is itself derivative of that theme of insulin telling cells what to do with energy. And even, Steve, it even goes beyond just telling a cell what to do with energy. It, it's quite profound, actually, the effect of insulin has on the whole body by extension. You know, insofar as our body is made up of all of these cells, you can see this effect at the whole body, specifically with insulin affecting metabolic rate. Uh, a study published from a wonderful group in Harvard, I think it was 2018 now, they found that if someone was eating meals that was keeping their insulin low as opposed to meals that spike insulin, their metabolic rate was roughly 280 kilocalories higher per day just by keeping insulin down. So I say that insulin controls fuel use. It wants cells to store energy. It will help cells store energy by slowing down the rate at which the cell is working. And that is metabolic rate as we typically understand it. So once again, we have this, we're sort of flirting with this relevance of insulin and the fat cell where if the body's energy use has gone down, well, then the body is of course in more inclined to store energy because that's the generally the only other avenue. Got it. Got it. And could you just help us understand where does it, where is it synthesized and produced from, and the role of insulin paired with glucagon? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So insulin is made from uh, these little cells within the pancreas called the beta cells. Now, interestingly. So, and these beta cells are stimulated when glucose comes up. So the beta cells will sense the increase in glucose, and then they will start to release the insulin in order to lower the glucose. So it's this what's called a negative feedback. Now, it, the beta cells, the insulin-producing beta cells, have a next-door neighbor called the alpha cells. And the alpha cells produce kind of insulin's opposite, and that is glucagon. So when glucose starts to get low – and insulin starts to get low, then the alpha cells will start to release glucagon. And essentially, like I said, how glucagon is insulin's opposite. You can almost pick the, the effect uh, that insulin has, and glucagon will do the opposite. 
And so it's the yin and yang in many, many ways, more than just blood glucose, but that's an obvious one. Whereas insulin wants to lower blood glucose, glucagon stimulates the increase in blood glucose. Where insulin inhibits fat breakdown or lipolysis on a fat cell, glucagon stimulates lipolysis. And another last one, although I could keep going, whereas insulin inhibits the production of ketones in the liver, it inhibits ketogenesis, glucagon stimulates ketogenesis. So these are two sides of the same coin mm. um, when it comes to metabolic function. They each have a function. They each are part of this beautiful ebb and flow, this wax and wane of hormones always seeking homeostasis, always constantly trying to get the body in a healthy, normal state uh, where they each have their moment. You know, insulin will be dominant at times and then glucagon will be dominant at times. However, not to push the conversation to metabolic health too soon, but in, in our environment, because of how we eat and how we live, insulin ends up dominating that tug of war almost all of the time and we never give glucagon its proper time to shine or time to become the dominant force and does insulin and this is a, a curious question that i have no um no understanding what the answer is and sorry if i'm leading you down a path that makes no sense but does insulin have any role directly as it relates to the immune system or is it really the the main driver of meta the metabolism and through that, there's like a secondary effect on your immune system. Yes, insulin does, in fact, have a direct effect. Uh, well, I should say insulin, insulin resistance um, has a direct negative effect. So immune cells, like every other cell in the body, so those white blood cells that are helping defend our body from, from pathogens, uh, you know, attack viruses and bacteria, they do require normal insulin signaling to function properly. The immune system requires insulin um, to help these cells act as robustly as they can. They can manifest insulin resistance. And so they start to lose some mm -hmm. of that stimulus that insulin provides that, that, that help almost in maintaining their function. So insulin resistance itself does um, compromise um, immune function but it's it's a little more complicated in that the it can go the other direction as well where if the immune system is activated and someone is experiencing an active infection or active inflammation that also can start to cause insulin resistance throughout the body and so someone can quickly understand how this is a this is a road that can go you know it's a two-way road where insulin resistance can be exacerbating or or mitigating some of the immune function of the body and then in contrast immune function when it's overactive can then start to feed back and compromise metabolic function that's fascinating thank you for answering that i wasn't quite sure where that was going but um, I'm, I'm glad i'm glad there was relevance um so okay so we've spoken about insulin and its primary roles um now let's talk about glucose and hyperglycemia. So I think most people would know that, you know, they would have heard of blood sugar. Maybe quite a few people would have heard of, you know, the idea of glucose and that's energy within the blood. You know, it's the sugar within the blood. Yep. I think people are starting to be aware that lots of sugar in the blood or elevated amounts for elevated periods of time is not a good thing. But I guess that causes a bit of a paradox in people's minds because they think, okay, we need glucose for energy. I've heard that you know most 
most cells need it. Well, I think we need to clarify that. Which cells absolutely need glucose? And what happens when there is too much glucose and or it cannot be removed from the bloodstream? Why is, why is this essential or necessary fuel also antagonistic to our health? Yes. Yeah. Well said. Uh, that that was a a good way to sort of present this discussion, this part of the discussion. Glucose is essential for human survival, and uh, however, the the inherent misunderstanding there needs to be addressed. People will hear you and I say glucose is essential for human survival and mistake us for saying we need to eat glucose. Now, I this is controversial, and I don't I don't mean for it to be. I actually prefer to be a peacemaker, but it, it, but even still, the, the the conflict is inherent in what I'm about to say. Humans have absolutely zero biological need for any carbohydrate in any way, shape, or form. We simply don't need it for survival. Our species uh, it, it was was evolved or designed to to simply produce all of its needs when it comes to glucose. So to be clear. We need glucose for survival. There are cells that demand glucose, and because of that, I guess, uh, maybe because that demand is so real and so relevant, we make everything we need. In other words, someone could eat zero carbohydrate in any given day or, or for days, weeks, months, years, and survive perfectly fine because they will make – the liver is so good at making glucose – that it will just make whatever the body needs. So to meet all of its needs for cells like our red blood cells, to some degree, some neurons in our brain, some certain cells in our kidneys, those are the cells that to varying degrees need glucose, especially our red blood cells. There is absolutely no alternative for the red blood cells. Uh, so we need the glucose. And again, to be clear, the body provides everything. Now, lest I be misunderstood, I'm not telling people not to eat any carbohydrates, but I would hope that there is some lesson there in that fact. Why would we want to base our diet on the one macronutrient, namely carbohydrates, that we have no biological need for? In contrast, why not focus on the two macronutrients, protein and fat, that we do have a biological need for? There are such things as essential fats. There are such things as essential amino acids. Let's focus on those. Now, for me also, I can't help see it this way, it's convenient that those also happen to be the two macronutrients with the least or no effect on insulin when we eat them. So carbohydrates end up becoming this, uh, well, it ought to be the, the lesser of the three where we don't have a biological need and it also happens to be the ones that increase insulin the most. And my philosophy on diet, the older I get and the more educated I get, is, is really we want to keep insulin low as often as possible. So let's focus on the two macronutrients that have the least effect. Again, protein and fat. So glucose is necessary for the body. Thank heavens we make all we need. And then you'd mentioned hyperglycemia. Because of the carbohydrate-heavy diet that most people eat, compounded with the fact that we have been told to eat multiple you know, six little meals per day, there are people who are living every waking moment and even most of their sleeping moment in, in a state of hyperglycemia. That once again becomes relevant in our climate today where everyone's afraid of this infection. Infectious pathogens like viruses and bacteria 
love glucose. They feast on glucose. That is their primary fuel. And that is why type 2 diabetics, these people with hyperglycemia, have such incredible infections. They have such problems with infections because they are allowing these, these, this, this infection to just feast and thrive and grow and, and multiply while we are giving them all the fuel they need for it. So uh, to sum that section up, if you will, the ins- uh, glucose is necessary for human survival. We have cells that need it, and our body makes what we need, but there's no need to give the body too much uh, and, and thus start feeding things we don't want to feed mm-hmm like infections and frankly even cancers every the cancer cells any little cancer we may have growing it's like fertilizer for them when we are letting them feast on all the glucose because they use glucose about 200 times higher than the average cell does okay okay and um, i also understand that glucose within the bloodstream is um almost like erosive or there is damage that causes to you know mm-hmm. the, the, the lining of them of, of all your um, uh, your circulatory system why mm-hmm. is that again if it's if it's a an essential part of the human physiology not necessarily exogenous glucose but the internal production and use of how come we have this delicate dance where we have this this energy source that if it is too elevated for prolonged periods of time in the bloodstream causes damage Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there are there are two general mechanisms of glucose-induced damage from from a long-term perspective, and then the short-term perspective of too much of damage with the glucose. That's because of what the glucose does at the kidneys. And so, very briefly, when I mentioned earlier that if we have too high of glucose for too long, and, and that isn't even that long. I mean, like in the order of a few days, someone starts to spill all this glucose into their urine. The kidneys can't keep all that glucose in there's so much and that this as the glucose is spilling into the urine from the kidneys it's pulling water from our blood and so the person who is experiencing this hyperglycemia induced excessive urine production they will start to have low blood volume low blood pressure and they will faint and then ultimately die if it's not corrected so that's the that's the acute effect of too much glucose, but that's not quite what you were alluding to. So when you mention the damage to the circulatory system and blood vessels, that's generally two mechanisms. And I'll, I'll mention one just at, to avoid getting too complicated, but basically the glucose molecule will start to bind molecules in the blood like amino acids and create something called advanced glycation end products or age, AGE. These ages will bind to receptors on cells and activate inflammation in those cells. So this glucose created, it's all, you know, this, this molecule created from the unholy union of glucose and an amino acid, for example, it starts to degrade structures in our bodies. And, and this is Dr. Robert Lustig, who is a pediatric endocrinologist at the University of California, San Francisco. I once heard him say that you can, one way of looking at human aging is this browning, browning, like the color brown. And that sort of starts to what, like literally tissues in the body as they age, you can look at older bone and, and it's, it starts to, it, it's more brown. And these reactions are the direct result of the glucose molecule creating these, creating these other, you know, kind of derivative 
these little you know bastard molecules that that we don't want around and it's it's these advanced glycation end products directly aging the, the cells well because of the formation of these ages at the risk of sounding too redundant but yeah his 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 perspective and i think there's a lot of credibility to it is that one view of human aging as we actually so poorly understand the process in reality is partly the consequence of glucose and and again i would emphasize like like you've said and i'm saying it again this is not to um wage war on glucose itself but it is i think to create a bit of a nuance to that conversation namely we don't want glucose to be too high too frequently this is this is something we want to keep in check and and i in the uk i bet uh, anyone who has the means is able to buy a continuous glucose monitor whereas in the us for some reason it's still by prescription from a physician only but i anyone who's starting to get curious about this and has the means go get a, a cgm a continuous glucose monitor and just see what happens i mean over the weekend in my home we we rarely eat uh, cereal, you know, boxed what's called you know cold cereal that you just dump into a bowl and have milk. That's a very rare treat. We got some on Saturday for the kids to eat that morning. I just couldn't resist, and I had just two little kid-sized bowls of it, and I could not believe the spike in my glucose as a as a you know grown man. Um, I looked at what happened to my blood glucose, and I just imagined what would be happening in my children's bodies. Where where they are much you know significantly smaller than I am, I would imagine their blood glucose was elevated um, and stayed up for you know two or three times longer than mine did because I can clear it faster because I'm bigger. But anyway, I'm getting a little off topic. Glucose needs to be kept in check for the reasons we've discussed, including blood vessel health and and neuron health, nerve health in the peripheral nerves. But many of those problems actually precede long-term elevations in glucose. And by that, I mean the the conventional perspective on these problems is that it's glucose dependent. And so someone would look at a type 2 diabetic and look at the peripheral neuropathy or the nerve damage they have and look at the blood vessel problems, the circulation problems they have, and they think, well, it's all because of the glucose. However, we know that you can start to detect these changes, the neuropathy and the blood vessel damage before the glucose is chronically elevated, touching on our need to shift our focus away from glucose, not that we ignore it, but we don't look at it as the primary marker of this progression towards type 2 diabetes, and we acknowledge the relevance of insulin. Because if we scrutinize insulin, we can detect changes in insulin 10 or 20 years before the glucose starts to change in the blood. And thus, we, we detect it much, much earlier, and we can start addressing the problem earlier, and we address it better. Because if we look at type 2 diabetes and metabolic health through the lens of glucose, well, then we may be tempted to think, let's lower the glucose by any means. And even though you are a type 2 diabetic with high levels of insulin, we're going to put you on insulin therapy to push your insulin even higher, and that will allow us to lower your blood glucose. And that paradigm is so wrong, and it's, it's so obvious. When you start giving a type 2 diabetic insulin, they gain weight significantly, and they are three times more likely to die from heart disease and two times more likely to die from cancer. Those are not good outcomes. And so if, if, if these were a glucose problem, if this was a glucose problem, we should put the person to normal glucose levels with insulin therapy and we would expect them to be better, but they get worse. 
they uniformly get worse. And so that touches on, it highlights the truth of the matter, which is type 2 diabetes is a disease of too much insulin. So why would we want to give them more? It's, it's analogous to wanting to cure someone of alcoholism by giving them another bottle of wine to drink. It's the, it's the alcohol that caused the problem. Why give them more alcohol? In type 2 diabetes, it's the elevated insulin that caused the problem. Why give them more insulin? It defies logic. And the sooner we can look at the problem in the right way, the better off we will be collectively. And, and, and of course, far beyond just the context of type 2 diabetes, mm. as we've touched on, most chronic diseases have a metabolic component to them. So I, I find this fascinating because clearly as we look through institutional guidance of what should be on our plate and how we should eat, um, they're carb-dominant diets for the most part. Um you know, 50 to 60% carbs, I think, in most cases. And yep. it's not just carbs. I think, you know, to to lead this conversation, assuming all carbs should be vilified and therefore reduced, I think would be the wrong way to look at this. I think the, yeah. the issue we have is the amount of ultra-processed, refined carbs in our diet, in in most cases, are excessive. And it's it's that easily accessible, easily converted glucose that hits you like a train gets into your bloodstream too quickly, you then have one one answer, one response, and that's elevate your insulin. And as you've said, if you are constantly having to do that because you want the glucose, the glucose is a value to the body, but it's not a value in your bloodstream. You need you need then to call on insulin and at higher and higher doses to be able to get the effect you need. I've also um, spent some time with people that reference uh, Jason Fung's work, um, who talks mm-hmm. about... Um, overflow hypothesis so this idea that you know if if a cell is already completely um has enough glycogen in it and you're asking for more to be placed within it you're in a bit of a bind so you've got the insulin you've got the glucose or the glycogen in the blood but it hasn't got a home anymore and therefore asking or injecting more insulin in that in that case is a bit stupid, right? It's it's asking you to mm-hmm. say, okay, look, just keep knocking on the door harder. Maybe they'll open up eventually. But if the house is already full and you can't fit any more in, uh, that just doesn't make any sense. The idea is clearly to drop the level of glucose coming into your body so you can start to use what you have. Is that fair? Do you agree with uh, Fung's work or do you see things differently? Yep. No, no. In fact, I, I think Jason really expresses that very lucidly and accurately. It's this idea of energy toxicity. And that's a that's a sort of provocative term, but I do think it's I do think it's accurate. And you're mentioning glycogen, and I think there's definitely a relevance to this. I would just want to add just actual fat storage because that that can really start to bring things full circle and help us understand the basis of poor metabolic health. As we mentioned earlier, insulin promotes the storage of energy, and this is most most explicitly evident in fat cells where insulin, even modest increases in insulin will start to promote fat storage or lipogenesis in fat cells, and it will, it will inhibit lipolysis or the breakdown of fat. The fat cell eventually reaches a point of, of, of maximum size. It cannot grow anymore. As, as we as we understand it. And we do see this in human obesity where the fat cells are several times larger. And we know for a fact that insulin stimulates that growth because you can take 
areas where in a diabetic, when if the diabetic is injecting with insulin, you can see the reason we tell the diabetic to rotate their injection sites is because if they continually give that insulin at one or two injection sites, the fat cells will grow so remarkably that you look at the individual and it looks like they have a tumor under their skin, but it's just that all of those fat cells in that one particular site are so excessively expanded, you know, five or six times more than the average fat cell that it just, it looks unnatural uh, as opposed to, you know, the fat cells kind of steadily growing throughout the whole body. But nevertheless, when a fat cell has reached what we think is its maximum size, it simply must stop responding to insulin. Insulin is coming and knocking and saying, hey, store more energy, store more energy. And the fat cell starts to respond, I can't. If I store any more, I will, you know, this isn't exactly accurate, but I will explode. I, I cannot get any bigger. And so the fat cell, having reached its full size, starts to become insulin resistant. And whereas insulin used to tell the fat cell to not release energy, now it can't. And so this fat cell starts to leak out some energy in, in, in sort of in, in com a commensurate level with insulin being able to somewhat continue to stimulate to store energy. So the fat cell itself maintains its size by bringing in new fat and glucose to make new fat and then leaking fat. So it becomes leaky. And when the fat cell becomes leaky, it not only starts leaking fat but it also starts leaking these pro-inflammatory proteins that I mentioned at the very beginning of our discussion called cytokines. And those two variables, the leaky fat and these leaky cytokines, start to promote insulin resistance throughout the rest of the body. And so in that paradigm of this kind of energy toxicity, it is very appropriate to start at the fat cell. The fat cell has become too full of energy it now starts to leak that energy in the form of fat along with inflammation, and that starts to basically knock over the other tissues, if you will. Where insulin, or where the fat cell is the first domino to fall, so to speak, in this perspective of insulin resistance, it then starts bumping into the, uh, the rest. And then we start to see the muscle cells become insulin resistant, the liver cells, the brain, and, and you know, our, our, our blood vessels. And so in each of these instances, there are genuine pathologies, whereas the muscle becomes insulin resistant, we have, a we have trouble maintaining muscle mass, and the person can develop sarcopenia or muscle wasting. As the liver becomes insulin resistant, it starts to produce too much cholesterol and, and leak too much glucose. And so the body has hyperlipidemia, so high lipids and high glucose, just because the liver is becoming insulin resistant. And the brain, when the brain becomes insulin resistant, that is very much at the core of Alzheimer's disease, where it can't utilize enough glucose to meet its energetic needs. And so the brain has this kind of energy gap, and, 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 and glucose can no longer meet all the, the, like I said, the energetic needs of the brain. And we could keep going. It happens with erectile dysfunction and the effects of insulin resistance on blood vessels. Same with hypertension. In, in the most common infertility in women is polycystic ovarian syndrome. That at its core, at its very base, is a disease of insulin resistance and it affecting the ovaries' ability to produce estrogens, the, the typical, the prototypical female horm sex hormones. So this energy toxicity model really does encompass the, the foundational causes of insulin resistance, which is itself the foundation of metabolic health 
um, if we're insulin sensitive or metabolic dysfunction or illness if we're met, if we're insulin resistant. Got it. And it's interesting you spoke about Alzheimer's. So I've I've got members of the family that have gone through dementia and Alzheimer's, um, no longer with us, unfortunately. Um, but I also have family members who work in our healthcare system, servicing and working with those with dementia and Alzheimer's. And they describe one typical thing you will see as like a, as a, a signal, um, a behavioral pattern, and it's the obsession for sugar. So uh, apparently they, they, people that start progressing through Alzheimer's just have this insatiable need for biscuits or like little cookies and stuff. And um, like just constantly having sugar. Mm-hmm. So what's the deal with that? So we, they, they, they've yeah. got too much sugar or too much blood glucose. They're struggling with that. Their cells now are becoming insulin resistant from the fat cell to the muscle cell to the brain cells. And yet they have this insatiable need to one, eat very frequently and to have lots of glucose. Do you want to talk about why the body is still choosing glucose when you'd like to think there's there should be some signal coming back saying, hey, we've got too much glucose. Can you give me something else? Yeah, yeah, right. Well, it is an instance. I appreciate what you're saying where why isn't there some self-correction that happens here? And in the sad fact, and I, I emphasize this with my students, my undergraduate students in, in my class, uh, uh, the pathophysiology class that I teach, there are instances where despite the body's best efforts, homeostasis or, or the body, you know, sort of realizing what you're just alluding to, it, it just doesn't happen. The very process itself is broken, if you will, and that, that is what underlies the disorder. So in the case of dementia, um, one of the ways people describe this, like Alzheimer's disease being the most common form, is brain glucose hypometabolism. And that's just a clever term for what I mentioned already, which is the brain has a certain energetic need. Indeed, it is one of the highest metabolic rate organs in the body. It's uh, ranked at number three, uh, and which is which is pretty considerable given all the different tissues we have. Uh, and it's so thus it, its needs for energy is very high. And glucose is the typical energy source. It's certainly typical in how we look at brain. We People often will say the brain has an exclusive demand for glucose, and that is absolutely demonstrably false on its face. That is not true. But what we know is that if you take people with Alzheimer's disease and track, you can actually do this just as a testament to just how clever we're becoming in science, um, you can track how much glucose the brain uses, and we detect that compared to the normal or non-demented brain, the Alzheimer's brain uses significantly less glucose. It's not getting the same amount of glucose. Now, this has relevance just um, beyond just Alzheimer's disease. We detect this brain glucose hypometabolism in other neurological conditions like migraine headaches and epileptic disorders. And what is so interesting about both of these three seemingly totally unrelated problems is that while they do have a common core of brain glucose hypometabolism, if you can fill in that energetic gap with the other main fuel the brain can use, then you start to fix the problem. And namely, that other fuel is ketones. But the great tragedy is, even though the brain will very greedily use ketones, the moment ketones are up in the blood, the brain will immediately start using it to the point that if ketones are elevated, 
they will provide up to 70% of the brain's energetic needs, completely um, uh, displacing the brain's reliance on glucose. Glucose still is being used just because it's there, but the moment ketones go up, the brain will shift its predominant energy use to 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 Alzheimer uh, to, to to ketones. This happens in the healthy brain and the Alzheimer's brain. We've detected just like we can detect the reduction in glucose use, we can detect the increase or or the maintenance of ketone use. In other words, the Alzheimer's brain is having trouble utilizing glucose. It is, however, having no trouble utilizing ketones, and there's something profound there, and and tragic. Because in our environment of constantly spiking insulin because of the constant consumption of sugary, starchy foods, the elevated insulin inhibits the production of ketones. That was a phenomenon I mentioned earlier where insulin prevents the liver from activating ketogenesis. And so the brain is crying out for ketones, the only other main fuel it can use in this pathology, in this disease state. And yet the person's eating habits deny the brain what it's so desperately crying out for. The brain is asking for ketones and the person is basically saying, no brain, I'm sorry, I want more biscuits. I want more cereal. I want more bread. And so you're just going to have to continue to starve because my my addictions are are more important. And I'm being a little bit perhaps mean spirited when I'm saying that because no one's deliberately doing that, of course, But, but it is what our actions are doing nonetheless. Our constant consumption of carbohydrates forces the body into a constant state of glucose burning. And that's, I hate to get on another tangent, but I've already started it. So I'm just going to run with it for just a moment. But the body has, the body itself relies on two main fuels and that is blood sugar and, and fat. So we are at any level, we're splitting between being a sugar burner or a fat burner. And insulin is what dictates that fuel use. If insulin is high, the body is in sugar burning mode. If insulin is low, the body is in fat burning mode. And importantly, when we are in fat burning mode, low insulin for roughly 16 to 20 hours, we start to make ketones from that fat burning. The liver is burning a lot of fat and it starts pushing some of this burned fat into ketones and that becomes uh, the fuel for the brain. So when you look at Alzheimer's or migraines or epilepsy, if insulin is elevated, the brain is stuck in sugar burning because it is dictating the energy use in the body. And early, we've mentioned repeatedly that insulin dictates fuel use. Insulin is forcing the body into sugar burning mode. And the brain, like I said, is crying out saying, you're trying to force me to eat this glucose. I can't. I can't eat any more glucose. It's not working. Please give me something else. So we have to lower insulin, thus shifting to fat burning mode, thus activating ketogenesis and now the brain thirsty for an alternative fuel finally get gets what it's been asking for and this is a real phenomenon you can take people with epilepsy people with migraine headaches people will have two or three debilitating migraines a week and you put them into ketosis they may never have another seizure again they may never have another migraine again and the migraine angle is interesting partly because of how unknown it is especially in light of how long we've known about it, there are actual human studies from 1929 revealing an almost complete cessation in migraine frequency if someone is in ketosis. And then the same thing starts to go even or continues to be seen even with Alzheimer's disease. You can take someone in the throes of this debilitating, terrifying disease, 
put them into ketosis through dietary change, which, as you know, isn't easy because of their tendencies and their addictions, if I, if I may say so. Um, but if you take the easier route and give them a ketone supplement, regardless, you put them in ketosis, you can start to detect immediate, within hours, um, and significant improvements in cognition. They can take tests. They can communicate better. They can get themselves dressed better. Now, I'm not saying it's a cure, uh, but it is significantly and observably better when the brain is allowed to eat ketones. We just have to give the brain a break. We have to give it the ketones that it's asking for. I wish I wish this was this was known, appreciated, and supported institutionally. Over in the UK, we have the NHS, and uh, yeah. the the benefits of low carb for all the things you've just spoken about: metabolic health, brain health, uh, just general immune health. They seem to be strong, robust, and logical, scientifically uh, observable, and something you can work through, just like the conversation we're having now. Yet, it just does not really seem to be a a a tool of use. So when people are in hospital and they, you know they've come out of surgery or they're having to do multi-day stays in 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 hospitals for what whatever reason, whether it be psychiatric or acute, the diets are high carb, processed crap, and I'm gobsmacked gobsmacked that we have not learned that when someone is in ill health, the very best thing we can do for them where they're in our care is to give them good nourishing food that puts their metabolism. And any deficiencies, you know, get starts correcting those. But we just don't put any emphasis on nutrition as it relates to medical care. Now, hopefully that changes, Ben. But you know, I, I haven't seen it. And in speaking to you know the people that I know that work with dementia and Alzheimer's, that there is no discussion. There is no discussion on diet for these individuals, either early stage or late stage Alzheimer's. And that is that is a shame because I've lost people to those diseases. And so mm-hmm. I only think we could have got in there sooner and at least changed their diet, they may have had a different outcome. They may have not progressed so quickly and so heartbreakingly. Uh, They may have been able to remember their kids' names for a little bit longer. They may have had a more pleasant exit. But um, anyway, I I, I digress. Let let me ask another another question as it relates to to this matter. So we're talking about um, glucose here predominantly, but what about the liberation of fat. So it sounds like whilst insulin is high, and that's a response to high glucose, our ability to liberate our fat stores is, I guess, inhibited. Um, but I also hear people talk about the composition of that that fat is also something that needs to be considered. It's not just the refined carbs necessarily that are causing insulin resistance, but we also have the poofers in our mm-hmm. um, ultra-processed foods. So these are polyunsaturated fatty acids. Could you talk to that and do you believe that that is mechanistically something that's happening, that it's not just the proliferation of carby, starchy, sugary foods, but it's also the oils that we use in in these ultra-processed foods? Yes, and I'm thrilled you mentioned that. I do think that those two two variables are the culprits. It is the excessive consumption of refined carbohydrates and – uh, that is combined with the excessive consumption of refined oils. And those refined oils, just to make sure people understand, these are things like soybean oil, canola oil, uh, cottonseed oil, or corn oil. They're commonly called vegetable oils. So if someone's buying a bottle 
and it says vegetable oil on it, it is almost certainly going to be soybean oil or to varying degrees some of these other seed oils. So they're not vegetables at all. So it's a complete misnomer. It is absolutely false advertising. Vegetables don't give any form of oil. Seeds do. And in this case, however, you have to – it's quite a process. It's quite an industrial process to get oil from these seeds. But they are very, very rich in this omega-6 polyunsaturated fat called linoleic acid. Now – Someone would be listening to this, Steve, and think, oh, well, Steve and Ben are sure harping on this mm-hmm. seed oils, but I don't, I don't really eat seed oils. Yes, 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 you do, uh, listener. I hate to say it. It's certainly, this is confirmed in the U.S., and I am certain it's the same in the U.K. Soybean oil has become the single most commonly consumed fat in the Western diet. And so this has replaced – it has taken the place of, of um, animal fats. It's taken the place of – Butter, which is uh, itself an animal fat, but all of these traditional or ancestral fats that our species grew up on, um, now the two most commonly consumed fats are both fake, soybean oil and and margarine, which is I think cottonseed-based or some other refined seed oil. But these fake fats are now the main ones we eat, and they become enriched in our bodies. And back to the um, the description I had of the fat cell, these seed oil metabolites actually force the fat cell to grow in size as opposed to being able to proliferate or multiply. Because when someone's getting fat, I didn't touch on this earlier, they will get fat through two mechanisms um, to varying degrees. One, um, which is, and I don't mean for this to sound like a paradox, is they will grow through hyperplastic fat cells or the fat cells are never getting very big. They just start to multiply, so they stay small-sized. That's the kind of person who is, like I said, paradoxically very overweight, but still surprisingly healthy. Now, I'm not saying they're perfectly healthy, but they maybe they don't have diabetes. Their blood pressure is pretty normal. You know, there are people like this, although fewer all the time. But in in this linoleic acid, this omega six PUFA that we get from these refined seed oils, it pushes the fat cell to grow through hypertrophy, or the each each individual fat cell is growing in size rather than multiplying or proliferating. That's this hypertrophic growth, and that is as I outlined earlier, much more pathogenic. And so these seed oils are definitely part of this global chronic problem where we're eating refined starches, which is spiking insulin, telling fat tissue to grow. And then we combine that with the excessive consumption of linoleic acid in the refined seed oils, basically forcing them to grow through hypertrophy. So I do believe these are the two main culprits when it comes to our diet, refined carbohydrates and refined seed oils. And unfortunately, they often come together Anyone who's eating a bag of, of chips or, or crisps mm-hmm. or they are eating other refined foods, you know, that, that are coming out of, you know, these kind of crunchy, salty foods, it's most certainly it's going to be refined carbohydrate and refined seed oils. That will be the fat that they're using. And so I am an advocate of fat. Uh, I, I do believe that we shouldn't most of our calories should come from fat. And I, I believe that because fat has no effect on insulin and and thus 
it's it's kind of a magical macronutrient where it nourishes the body but keeps the body in that fat burning state so i like to joke you burn what you eat and by eating fat you keep insulin low well then you're burning fat when you eat carbohydrate you shift to glucose burning or sugar burning and then you're and and you're not burning fat so eat the fats that we have eaten since time immemorial that is animal fats and fruit fats and let me clarify a fruit fat is when we are, in, in, including our ancestors, just simply have to press, physically just compress the flesh of a fruit, not the seed of the fruit, but the flesh. And that comes, those typical fatty fruits or coconuts, olives, and nowadays avocados as well. But those are, but I don't think our ancestors really ate much, would have used avocado oil as much as we do, but it's perfectly fine. But our ancestors, uh, they would have just, they would have gotten the olives and they just would have physically just compressed them, including just stepping on them. And, and with same with olive, uh, with coconut uh, fruit flesh, you just physically compress it and then you get an oil from it. Those are natural oils. We as a species are well adapted to using them because we've been using them for millennia. So focus on these ancestral fats, animal fats and fruit fats. Of in, in which there are very little, very little of these omega-6 polyunsaturated fats, and thus I believe they are healthier. What about if someone says, okay, but um, I like my plant-based foods, I'm going to, I'm plant-based, I'm vegetarian, I'm vegan, one, you know, on the spectrum of plant-dominant, yeah. which is basically carb-dominant diets, but I'm losing weight or I'm maintaining weight, things are okay, I hear you, but I'm having clearly a high carb, therefore high glucose diet, and I s I'm not getting particularly fat, and I feel quite healthy. Now, let's not get into nutrient deficiencies and antagonists, all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. But let's just mm -hmm. talk about the kind of glucose burden. So, if someone is eating at a calorie deficit, but it is predominantly carb based, is that still causing pathology? Is it still causing? issues internally albeit it's not expressed through body weight yeah yeah that's a that's a great question i'm thrilled you're bringing up that point i i would say this if someone leaves a, a standard western diet behind and adopts a plant-based diet even vegan which i am very morally and scientifically opposed to but let's put that aside for now if someone did that absolutely they will feel better um, most certainly in the short term and even for quite a while uh, and that is because if it's done well, if it truly is plant-based, whole foods-based, they are leaving behind these two culprits that we were just talking about. They have left behind the processed carbohydrates and the processed seed oils. That is a good thing. So to be clear, that will be a better way to improve metabolic health than the standard Western diet, which is going to be rich, enriched with these two processed you know, foods, carbohydrates, and, and these seed oils, these refined seed oils. However, I, like you said, and, and I won't harp on that anymore, it is uh, it, the complete avoidance of animal foods is a diet that is incompatible with human survival. The person will die um, from two different types of anemias or, or other problems, including, um, well, various other problems, including the lack of um, essential fats. So, which is beside the anemia problems. So it's, yeah, I won't go any more than that. So yeah, to be clear, someone can have metabolic improvements, um, but, but 
uh, it can't be indefinite, unfortunately, if it's purely plant-based. There must be some consumption of animal processed of animal foods. But however, I have seen instances where someone adopts a vegan diet and it, it's terrible because there is a tremendous amount of junk food that fits perfectly well within a vegan diet strictly. You know, if someone's strictly just saying, I'm just simply avoiding animal foods, but I'll eat anything else. Well, you can fit a lot of junk food into that anything else category. And that including much is proliferating, isn't it? I mean, it's you oh, know, yes. that clearly that is such a massive growth opportunity for big food that anything that they can put with a vegan label on, they're doing so, right? From fake meats to lab meats to all sorts of alternative pretend meat type products. It, yeah, it, that aisle is getting bigger and bigger and now becoming multiple aisles in most supermarkets. And this is all processed food, right? So is, and I think people don't realize this, Ben, like, Bread is a processed food. It's an ultra-processed food because you are processing the grains as well as the you know the fats that may may go into that and other ingredients, and then you are processing it again to create the bread. Whether it's a you know pan bread or it's a nice kind of hearty kind of um, whole grain bread, it still is undergoing significant processing. As well as vegan diets typically have a lot of fruit and they have fruit smoothies, and then that's just a sugar bomb. So I think in those two instances, whilst they can be classed as relatively um, whole food. Those two issues I, st I, st I still take issue with because I think bread is often eaten in excess in these diets and fruit is quite often eaten in excess and quite often smoothies, which is just liberating the sugar and making it even more of a problem. Would you agree? Oh, completely. I, that's exactly right. I just think that there's a certain amount of naivete when it comes to a vegan diet or, or someone um, kind of taking this, what they think is the higher kind of moral road or ethical road and proudly proclaiming they avoid all animal foods, they can they do tremendous damage to their bodies. Like, we, like we've been saying, simply because so many convenient, snacky junk foods fit within that model. It fits within that paradigm of avoiding animal foods. And yes, there is something uniquely tragic about bread because it has such uh, it has such a beautiful kind of romantic idea around it. This idea of, of a home being filled with the smell of baking bread. And, and, and yet, the, the, like you said, the reality is that bread that most people eat these days, purchased from the store, is just junk. Mm. Now, if someone we're willing if someone is listening to this and they they think well I make my own bread at home and I use Sourdough. I use butter instead of these seed yes yes exactly and if they allow it they eat it the way our ancestors did which is allow it to actually ferment the magical thing about fermenting is that the bacteria as they are producing the gases the CO2 that allow the bread to rise the dough to rise they're eating the carbohydrate they're eating the starch in that bread in the, in the in the in the milled flour and so it, we, the actual amount of carbohydrate that we're getting from that bread is, is, has been reduced because the bacteria have started doing it for us. Because remember, bacteria can only eat glucose, and it will start to eat the glucose in that flour. And so by the time we've eaten it, we not only get the bacteria themselves and the short-chain fats that they make by fermenting that, that glucose, but then we get less glucose. So my sentiment on bread uh, is that if someone wants to eat bread, and I understand it, it is delicious – I totally get it. Try to eat truly, genuinely fermented sourdough 
that's the way our ancestors did it. And I think there's a wisdom there that we've lost um, and we've, we've sacrificed on the altar of convenience. I agree. And we've had um, um, Bill Schindler on, on this podcast and he speaks very eloquently about our anthropology and our uh, ancestry. So, um, yeah, I, I totally agree. Now, I did have one little sub-question to hyperinsulinemia. So this is obviously the, the notion that through too much glucose, we've elevated our insulin at chronic levels, we're overfeeding, we're fr- eating too frequently, these uh, elevated levels of insulin stay high, that's causing a problem. The, the flip side, is that a problem? So if you are on a strict keto diet long term, um, and you're getting a macro proportion such that you're raising insulin so little, could there be a problem that could manifest there where you're not using the machinery enough and either, uh, you know, it, no, is not the wrong, right word, but it becomes redundant or not as effective anymore? Considering insulin is such an important player in human metabolism, what about if we underuse it? Is that an issue? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, I, the easy answer to my knowledge is no. And I hope I'm saying that objectively. I do. I, I constantly try to check my biases as a scientist. Now, I say that because I'm simply unaware of evidence to suggest that long-term adherence to a ketogenic diet is harmful in any way in, in humans, mind you. There are people who want to invoke rodent studies where they're put into ketosis because of soybean oil, and I just don't think that's fair. So I am unaware of evidence suggesting that long-term ketosis or long-term avoidance of, of high of carbohydrate sources in the diet is is negative or pathogenic. Uh, however, well, in fact, let me cite one study. So just over the weekend, a study was published in by a British journal, the Journal of Nutrition and Metabolism, and they found that uh, uh, adherence to a low-carb, even ketogenic diet in what was you know quote unquote older adults. This was 60 to 75 had significant metabolic improvements. Not only did they have a a better blood lipid profile, cholesterol and triglycerides, they lost five times more fat than the low fat group did, including three times more fat from their visceral fat or their central fat stores and significant improvements in insulin sensitivity, all compared with the conventional low fat diet. So these are, now mind you, that was uh, was an eight or 12 week study. So it's not you know, long-term, like years. So I, I would want someone to know that I'm acknowledging that. I, I would say, Steve, just to make sure someone knows that I appreciate all aspects of this, the one consideration when someone's in long-term ketosis is that they shift very heavily. They, they basically shift their reliance on fuel to fat burning. And then they are, they are, they kind of almost I hate to say this, but I don't know how else to say it. They're almost stuck in fat burning mode as opposed to the average person who isn't very metabolically flexible. They're stuck in sugar burning mode. And let me focus on that one first. So metabolic flexibility is this, is this ability to very quickly shift between sugar burning and fat burning. So if you and I were to sit down and have a bagel and a cup of orange juice, our blood glucose and our insulin would spike and we would be demonstrably in glucose burning mode. That would be almost the entirety of meeting our energetic needs for a couple hours. And then a couple hours after this, we, we've shifted and now we're back into fat burning mode. So we could shift, but we were flexible between our two fuels. The average person is stuck. They have a metabolic inflexibility and they're stuck in sugar burning. 
So they would have eaten that bagel in that glass of orange juice. They were in sugar burning mode. And then five or six hours later, they're still in sugar burning mode. Now, if we Which so that's means metabolic that they end up snacking before then, right? Yeah, because that's right. Yeah. That's right. Because as the glucose starts to come down, that's the only fuel they rely on. So they feel like they have to bump it back up. Yes. Yeah, so it does. It creates a vicious cycle. Now, in contrast, if someone has been adhering to a ketogenic diet long term, let's let's say months. Now, they can, in a way, have a metabolic flexibility, but it's the reverse. They are, if you will, stuck in fat burning mode. And I say that somewhat reluctantly, although I do think it's true, simply because if you take someone who's in ketosis long term and you suddenly give them that bagel and that orange juice, they will be less capable of clearing that glucose. So when you and I sat down, we're metabolically flexible. We have some carbs, but we're also kind of low carb eaters, um, you know, but we have carbs from time to time. And I don't mean to advocate for one or the other here, but you and I would sit down and eat that bagel and that orange juice. We've cleared that glucose in about two hours. Long-term strict ketosis, complete avoidance of carbohydrates, if they sat down after two months of pure ketosis, they would we would eat that, let's say it was me and you again, we'd eat that bagel and that orange juice. Now our glucose may be up for 50% longer. Maybe it was three hours to clear the glucose or three and a half or so, or maybe even four. And so there was this definite detectable um, delay in our clearing the glucose because we sort of were a little metabolically inflexible. We're stuck in fat burning. But I would say if we were to do that same thing the next day, we'd have no problem. So we can we can recover that metabolic flexibility very quickly. And indeed, that is something that is a fact that someone can take advantage of. If if someone has to go into the clinic and take an oral glucose tolerance test, which is you know deliberately testing, explicitly testing someone's ability to respond to glucose and clear it, you can sort of prime the pump and get flexible again by just consuming more carbs. The, the, a couple days before the person goes in. So that is, I would say, for the sake of being wholly accurate, a state of metabolic inflexibility itself being in fat burning mode. It is decidedly better than being stuck in sugar burning mode, simply because there are no chronic diseases that are going to come up from being in ketosis, as opposed to being stuck in sugar burning mode. That is when i all related to insulin resistance, and so we have all the diseases associated that with that that I outlined earlier. So I do think there are the two considerations of metabolically um, metabolic inflexibility, but I would strongly suggest one is better than the other. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes perfect sense as well. It's coming through loud and clear. Um, as people try um, ketosis and go into keto diets, very low carb diets, um, there are some. Uh, uh, there's some people that will kind of throw stones at that and say, actually, some science suggests that your muscle starts to become insulin resistant. Um, I have understood that to be something to do with muscle glycogen sparing. Is that a pathological issue? Is that an issue to be concerned about? Uh, does it happen? What are your thoughts on on that and um, whether people should be concerned? Yeah, uh- I think that's a relevant point. I, I've heard it in discussions. I don't believe it is justified. I don't know of any evidence showing that the muscles become insulin resistant in, in ketosis. Some people will refer to that as physiological insulin resistance, and I don't, I don't think that term applies. Um, I would say, as I mentioned a moment ago, 
ketosis is associated with a glucose intolerance, but that isn't quite the same thing. So shifting the body back to glucose burning mode isn't itself a function of insulin resistance. Uh, because if you were to give that person an injection of insulin, the insulin will work quite well. And the the person in ketosis has very low levels of insulin. And that is that is on its on its face uh, directly contrary to the idea of insulin resistance. In in true insulin resistance, the insulin isn't working quite well, and it is coupled with elevated insulin in the blood. So this hyperinsulinemia, those are the two facets of genuine chronic insulin resistance. And that happens in the pathological insulin resistance, which is so abundant in our world today. But it also happens in the states of genuine physiological insulin resistance, like pregnancy. Mm. When a woman becomes pregnant throughout the course of the pregnancy, we can detect the steady increase in insulin levels. And, and it is associated with insulin resistance as we conventionally define it. Now, it, it serves a purpose. It helps the mother get fatter, which she needs. You know, in the case of if she weren't able to eat, she at least has enough energy on her to lactate and, and feed the baby, to nurse the baby. But it also helps the baby get fatter. Uh, so this high insulin promotes the, the baby getting fat, so which is essential to, to human uh, optimal human function. We, we ought to be born fat. Um, and that's a whole other topic uh, to understand why. But nevertheless, even in that case of physiological insulin resistance, it is associated with hyperinsulinemia. And so in the case of someone adhering to a ketogenic diet, insulin becomes quite low. And indeed, they become more insulin sensitive, like the study I just mentioned published in the UK over the, this last weekend, as, as we record this now in the, you know, towards the end of August. This was, they, they detected improvements in insulin sensitivity. So that directly challenges the idea that long that ketosis is causing some insulin resistance. People want to say that it's physiological insulin resistance. I say that it is indeed physiological, but it's not insulin resistance. It is just a glucose intolerance. The body just doesn't utilize the glucose as well because the insulin has been down for so long. We're burning fat like gangbusters mm. and we're not really burning glucose. Great, great. Now that makes perfect sense. Now, should we should we bring this to um, a crescendo now, where we've uh, kind of ne meandered through insulin, hyperinsulinemia, insulin resistance? Done great job. We've spoken about some, you know, some of the the drivers behind that, the commonality throughout our our, our developed worlds. Let's bring this to the immune system. Let's bring this to this current day or the 2020 issue we have, which is the COVID crisis and people one sadly passing. Uh, lots of throughout the world. We see that comorbidities are present in 95% of those cases, at least here in the UK. It is, you know, highly correlated with obesity, um, diabetes, um, and issues really of metabolic health. So in order to look forward, as we look forward and think about protecting ourselves, our family, our kids, our parents, it seems prudent upon us to really understand what metabolic health is, what host health is, because if we are, if we are robust, I really believe this relatively benign virus won't really have a say in causing any pathology in our body. So if that's a true statement, if you agree with that, help us understand this connection between metabolic health or 
or put it the other way around, metabolic dysfunction or metabolic syndrome and its relationship to immune health and how can we ultimately in, improve our immune health, in, uh, you know, remove or reduce inflammation and have it more effective at its job, which is being able to deal with external insults effectively, efficiently, and without getting, you know, going over the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, well said. I, the, I think that our, as you and I alluded to, certainly at the beginning of this discussion, metabolic health matters more now than, than, than ever. Uh, it just continues to become, we see more and more ways that makes it relevant. And in the case of COVID-19, I like what you said. This is a disease that really is selective in how it is affecting people, um, as, as most infectious diseases are, to be, to be honest. Uh, and the people that are most inclined to suffer most from this are people that fit with three specific pre-existing conditions. And you'd mentioned this in the U.S., the, the data from New York found that 94% of all COVID-19 ad- admissions to the hospital, 94% of these people had a pre-existing condition. 88% of them had two or more. So these, these it was almost it would be almost unheard of for the person essentially non-existent for a person not to have some underlying problem and underlying problem. Number one is obesity. Number two was diabetes. Number three was hyper or sorry, opposite hypertension and diabetes. This matters because each of these is a component of insulin resistance or the metabolic syndrome, which itself is the insulin resistance syndrome, just given another name. And the reason this matters, and I think it's valuable for us to talk, and hopefully someone listening sees value in this, this is a virus that is here to stay. I do think, and I say this as a scientist, although admittedly not a virologist, but this is a virus that is here to stay. It is now a new part of our global ecosystem. I think any hope that we are going to completely eradicate this virus is, I hate to say it, a little naive. So despite our efforts to want to control the spread, despite our efforts to want to find effective vaccines or or other interventions like infusing people with what's called convalescent plasma to give the antibodies from one person to another person, and I do think there's value in all of these, especially the the last of them, Um, it's it's also naive to think this is the cure and, and we're done we don't have we don't have to worry at all no i think that we have to take a one step deeper and acknowledge or after acknowledging that this is a new virus it is here to stay thus everyone is going to get infected at some point what can we do to ensure that this infection has minimal impact on our on our body on our long-term health and that is to shore up our defenses metabolically and address those main pre-existing conditions the relevance with each of them is pretty interesting, but with obesity being the first, it, the relevance could be simply evident at the level of the fat cell itself. Fat cells are among the highest expressing cells of all cells in the body with something called ACE2, A-C-E-2. ACE2 is the implicated co-receptor for COVID-19. In, in other words, to back it up a little bit, For a virus to replicate in our bodies and to spread, it has to, this little viral particle must get into the cell. And once it is in the cell, it basically hijacks the cell to start making more and more of itself to share then with other cells and infect other cells. So it has to rely on our own cells. And to do that, it must get into our cells. 
So ACE2 is this co-receptor, this mechanism that facilitates COVID-19 getting into the cell. And as I mentioned, our fat cells are among the highest expressors of this receptor, this co-receptor, that compared with any other cell in the body. And so it stands to reason if someone has more and bigger fat cells, they have more of these co-receptors. And it just makes it all that much easier for COVID-19 to get into the cell and thus infect the cell and begin replicating. So that is likely the immediate connection with obesity being pre-existing condition number one. It could just be that the fact that fat cells become these perfect incubators for COVID-19. Mm -hmm. Then the relevance with diabetes could be the combination of the hyperglycemia, feeding um, the feeding the the infection, giving it the fuel it want it needs for these cells to start replicating the virus, and with the hypertension and and diabetes together, they just simply happen typically um, in in states of poor metabolic health, like too much fat. Even if it's modest amounts of too much fat, it's still more than optimal for the person. And so I think at the risk of oversimplifying it, and I would want anyone to know that I'm saying this with some. Um, some speculation, I can't help but suspect the single most relevant thing someone can do to mitigate their their risk of a serious COVID-19 infection is to simply reduce their fat amount, start to shrink those fat cells, and do so by adopting a diet that lets your insulin go low. Because when insulin is low, fat cells shrink. Is it is it right in saying that a Kind of, uh, if you're in hyper, if you're in a hyperinsulinist state or insulin resistance, that in its own right, that is pro-inflammatory, or is the inflammation that comes along from antagonistic foods or chemicals or other lifestyle effects? Because inflammation or the the burden of ongoing inflammation and autoimmune conditions. I, my understanding is it takes away, it taxes the immune system. Therefore, when you have an, an extra external insult and your body's already you know, busy working on internal chronic stuff causing inflammation, you bring in something else. It has less resources to get at it. And if then you're vitamin D deficient, you have less breaks to stop the cytokine storm. So help me understand if you know an inflammatory um, internal environment is caused by insulin resistance, or is it the choice of foods, or just the fact that the, there's too much fat on the body? Yeah, yeah. So I can. It, it does appear that insulin resistance does directly compromise immune function, but that wouldn't necessarily be directly increasing inflammation. I would. What I can speak to with more authority is the fact that as fat cells do become too big that does start to promote inflammation throughout the body, what's called a, a systemic subclinical inflammation. It's not as bad as what you would see with a full-blown infection or even an active phase of an autoimmune disease, but it still results in a chronic elevation in inflammation, but it's inflammation that's serving no purpose. It's not like it's successfully defending the body against an, infection, an infectious pathogen. So insulin resistance itself, certainly can have a direct effect on compromised immunity. Um, although I, 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 and I say that with authority, but it's not mechanism that I'm as familiar with. I can definitely state the 
energy toxic fat cell or the overfilled fat cell starts to itself promote inflammation. And that may be, um, as I said, it serves no purpose because it's not like it's improving immunity. It is possible that that inflammation with no purpose is you know, hijacking inflammation that should have had a purpose, perhaps, and I'm speculating, but maybe it's it's inflammation and immune function that would have otherwise been fighting this viral infection, but it can't quite um, mount the specificity to attack it directly because it's just sort of too busy being distracted by the overfilled fat cells. And then on top of that, Ben, I guess we have not just the insulin resistance, but if we're eating foods that are pro-inflammatory in their own right, if consumed chronically, and therefore it creates leaky gut and then starts the cascade of auto or an autoimmune response, and that therefore certain tissues or glands start becoming chronically inflamed, that isn't necessarily a function of insulin. But it is a, but it is connected, right? Because it's the choice of foods. Yes, yeah, yeah. So I, I think that's right. There, without a doubt, there are foods that people don't know they're responding poorly to, um, that that could absolutely perhaps be adding to this almost sort of immune confusion or inflammatory confusion, where it's responding to the uh, a harmful agent in the food as opposed to responding to the harmful pathogen itself. But I think that's relevant because, at least to some degree, because I think that people having adverse reactions to food is much more common than most people think. Uh, and and that's because they, they will eat something and they will just, they're so used to eating the food and they're so used to just not feeling perfect or, or optimal that they they've, it's become a new normal. They don't realize that they they actually that when they eat sugar, it's the sugar that's making their throat a little sore. And I say that it might, someone might think, Oh, for heaven's sakes, Ben, don't mm -hmm. go into that. But I've actually noticed this. If I indulge in sweets, I will get a bit of a sore throat that evening and I will get more congested. I will have more of a stuffed nose. Uh, and, and without a doubt, it will happen um, when I indulge in some sort of sugary sweet. And so now I'm not saying I mean, I'd hate for someone to overinterpret what I'm suggesting there, but I guess my point being people do respond to foods. And I think insofar as we have included, you know, constantly including more and more fabricated, manufactured things as we are changing foods, then I, I think it's it's little surprise that we um, have a response to them that our ancestors would have never known by eating such natural, clean foods, whether it's because of what we're putting on the food to help them grow or what we're adding to the food to help them last on a shelf longer. I do think that there, and, I, and I'm not an authority in this, and I'd want every listener to know that I can't help but 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 wonder at at what we're eating that may sort of, like I said, keep our immune system distracted focusing on fighting these new little things that we keep dumping into our bodies rather than wanting rather than successfully defending it against an infection. Yeah, no, no I, I, to I totally agree. I think there is, there's more and more um, speculation, hypothesis and science starting to declare that we're, yeah, we're, we're, we're there's an inter the constant internal war in the modern Western body with inside because we're just 
inflicting so much abuse through, you know, the foods that we eat, you know, the chemicals we're subject to, uh, whether it be, you know, the plastics, the abundance of petrochemicals in and around, you know, our foodstuffs mm-hmm. and our mm-hmm. lifestyle, as well as other things, radiation and, other, you know, stress. There's just, there's a lot going on. So let's try and make it real for people as we close this up now. So we've spoken about the effect and the importance, therefore, to get your metabolic health in order to therefore give your immune system that robustness such that it doesn't bat an eyelid at this. Now, I think this is guidance. I would like to make this guidance relevant to someone who's 15 through to someone who's 90. I I think clearly there is a high correlate between um, COVID-19 serious cases and deaths and age. But I'm of the opinion, and I think many others are, you could be a very healthy 90-year-old and robustly shake this off, or you could be quite a poorly 70-year-old and unfortunately pass away. This isn't just a function of age. This is a function of how well have you aged and how well mm-hmm. is your metabolism, how well is your immune health. So one, do you agree with that? And two, bring it home, Ben. Talk about how we can make uh, make this practical for people. What can people think about in terms of improving their metabolic health and thus therefore improving their immune health? Yeah, I do agree with it. And and I think it's well said. I I do well in in an effort to simplify it, because metabolic health can seem like such an ambiguous, vague idea, I do think it is appropriate to encourage someone to focus on keeping insulin at a low level or in control that when it does bump, it bumps up and it comes down quickly and it doesn't happen again for several hours. I do believe there's tremendous value in that. And that is what I attempted to really outline in the book. Um, and, and in fact, in hindsight, when I, when I wrote the book, I was really only writing it in the context of non-infectious chronic diseases. Like we've mentioned the big kind of killers that we're all afraid of. I would, if, if I were writing it now, I would include a section about infectious diseases too, including COVID-19, because the relevance just seems so obvious. So again, what could someone do to improve metabolic health? I would say focus on insulin. And the best way to do that, in my opinion, is just four simple pillars. Now, I say simple, and I'm not using the word easy, because I appreciate that making dietary changes is not easy, because the person is often dealing with addictions. They are addicted to the worst foods, and everyone is to varying degrees. It's just how successful we are in fighting those addictions. And so I do have, well, empathy. I understand that. But nevertheless, it doesn't change the fact that these recommendations are simple, and I will share them in in this simple way. The first one, I believe, is first because it's the most important, and that is control carbohydrates. That is not that we can't eat any. It is just acknowledging the most starchy and the most sugary foods that we are commonly eating and put them in their place, which is to say we eat them very infrequently. And in contrast, we focus on real food, even in the carbohydrate class, uh, and, and that is fruits and vegetables. Eat them, don't drink them. So that's number one, control carbohydrates recognize them for the insulin spiking things they may be and focus on the things that have the least effect on insulin, like generally fruits and vegetables eaten, not, not, we don't drink them. Now, number two, 
prioritize protein, make sure you get enough high quality protein. And by high quality, I mean, I completely mean animal protein. They are superior in every way to every plant protein um, for reasons that I won't elaborate now for the sake of time. But make sure you get enough protein, and that is specifically from dairy, eggs, and meat. They are demonstrably the best for humans, and there's really no debating that. But it hasn't changed the fact, like you mentioned earlier, people want to position plant proteins as being healthy or even naively better for the planet. Neither of those is true. Third point, um, focus or or don't fear fat. Um, We have uh, such a cultural a fear of dietary fat, and I think that is completely misplaced. We should eat fat. We should eat it liberally. We should enjoy it, but enjoy it as as God intended, which is fat comes with protein. Almost always those two come together, and it comes together for a reason, improving the anabolic effects of protein and, in, and improving the digestion of the protein. So don't fear fat. Use it uh, you know, cook with it, um, uh, and and then focus on the natural fats, which are animal and f- fruit fats. And then the fourth point is don't feel the need to eat all the time. So this idea of watching the clock and fasting, intermittent fasting, I believe, is tremendously effective at both keeping insulin low and checking our addictions, forcing us to develop the discipline to say no. no when our belly starts to demand some junk food and we know it doesn't need it, I do think there's tremendous value in in developing that discipline and intermittent fasting, whether it's every other day fasting or whether it's time restricted eating within one given day where, uh, you know, they eat, they, they skip breakfast and they eat lunch and dinner, modest lunch and dinner, um, whatever it may be, intermittent fasting is a smart strategy. So those are the four pillars that I think can help someone improve their insulin sensitivity, which I strongly submit is the core of optimal metabolic health. I love that. And I love the ordering as well, Ben, because if you started with intermittent fasting or fasting protocols and you're on a you know heavy carb diet, I think it's very mm-hmm. difficult to do. I've been there. I know what it was like to Hey, just go two hours without food was a bit of a struggle at times. So mm-hmm. I think fasting has to appear once you've started to eat the right foods and i like your order and i think that's fantastic i I, i'm amazed that i've gone from someone who can't eat couldn't go more than two hours without a feed in and get hangry to someone who can now multi-day fast for three days if i want to it's not like dead simple dead easy but it's doable i eat quite often have days of just one meal a day I have a big meal. I love that meal. You know, it is all in <laughs> when I eat, but I can go mm-hmm. a whole day without eating now. And it's incredible. And that's happened because I've been able to liberate my fat stores and leverage those and not constantly be driven by the need to top up my glucose level. So I think that is bang on. It's it's brilliant. It's clear. It's concise. Um, hopefully people can get your book and obviously fill in the blanks and understand some of the details behind that and more of the science. Um, is there any other resources or places in which people can find you, Ben? Yeah, yeah, thanks. Uh, I'm I'm fairly active on social media, and the, my handle there is Ben Bickman, and that Bickman is B-I-K-M-A-N, Ben Bickman, PhD. And I generally just use this to share some of the latest, most relevant um, research into human metabolism. And then also I could direct people Although in the UK, it's currently a problem. I, I have another website where I will be providing blog content, but it's it's actually a site where 
people can see this low carb shake that I've started making with a couple of my brothers just to sort of fill in the gap and address the convenience factor of a low carb diet. But I, I don't want to say more than that, lest anyone think I have an ulterior motive, but that material will be uh, at my website, get health and health is spelled H L T H get health.com. But that's, those are the best ways to find me and, and what I'm up to. Fantastic. And you're great online. And um, yeah, I hope people do follow you and get your book, Why We Get Sick. Um, any closing thoughts? I think you've done a fantastic job. Thank you for uh, enduring my curiosity that just it seems yeah. never ending at times. But um, I think we've covered a great deal. Um, I don't think there's yeah. really much more to say, but closing thoughts. Yeah, well, hey, Steve, again, thanks. Uh, I really do. As I mentioned to you before we went online or on the air here, I am delighted um, at at having a new audience, um, not for the sake of, of me. I'm much too self-effacing, to be honest. Um, I, I don't love attention, but I do love um, bringing attention to something I think is just not discussed enough until – until we appreciate the relevance of insulin and insulin resistance in our health, we will continue to misdiagnose and mistreat chronic diseases, perhaps even including infectious chronic diseases. And, and the sooner we acknowledge the relevance of insulin resistance and, and controlling insulin, the better off we're going to be and, and certainly the better off conventional clinical care will be. So th that is my hope. Um, anyone who's listened to this, I, I genuinely hope they they turn this off in a minute and and feel gratified that they've learned something valuable um, that they can uh, valuable and practical that they can take this and make a change in their own lives and maybe even facilitate a change in a loved one's life as well. Yes, I agree, and it's it's probably going to be have to be a bottoms up strategy because I think there are motivators uh, and in, industrial motivators at that financial motivators that make it difficult for our institutions and our governments to fully embrace the things that you have said. It doesn't mean they're wrong, it just means there are conflicts of interest, whether it be feeding the population efficiently, whether it be the ties to you know big food manufacturers, whatever it is, but we're stuck in a bind where we're not going to get this leadership from our government, we're not going to get this leadership wholesale from our NHS. So we're going to have to take it in our own hands. And that means being able to engage with your GP and with those people and explain what you're doing and help them understand why you're doing it. Because I think some of these um, practitioners are going to be um, naive to, to some of the things you've just spoken about, Ben, and maybe they can point them to this episode. So thank you so much for your time, Ben. You are a true pleasure. It's been amazing. Keep up the great work and I hope we can keep in touch. Thank you so much, Steve. I had a great time. Thanks again. Thanks, man. Whoa, just before you go, I want to know two things from you, if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find that episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please, and write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, that's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, there's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. 
Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.